and we're turning to the book of Revelation. You can find it on page 1,233 of the Green Church Bibles. It's the last book in the Bible, so start at the back and flick your way forward. If you get to Jude or John, you're too far towards the front. Page 1233. And we're starting at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Ed, thank you very much. Do keep that open. That's what we're going to be uh, working our way through uh, this afternoon in our time together. Uh, But I want to begin by uh, reminding you of a TV show that started. I can remember when it started. I remember watching um, the first uh, uh, run of it on the BBC. It was called The Voice. It was on a Saturday night. And uh, as I say, it aired some uh, 12 years ago now. And it was pretty unique at the time. I don't remember if you remember when The Voice first came on telly. But the unique thing about it was that the contestant, as they began singing, trying to impress the judges, actually the judges would have their backs turned. So they couldn't actually see the performer. They were behind them. They could only hear the voice. And if and when one of the judges felt that the voice was was good enough to grab their attention, well, they'd make a big show of hitting the button in front of them. And very dramatically, their judge's chair would turn around. And there they are. They'd get to see the performer. They'd get to see the person behind the voice. You can see why I thought of that when I came to John uh, chapter 1, because John, who wrote down this book of Revelation, he hears the voice behind him, first of all. Now, we're told it's a loud voice, a properly loud voice. It's like trumpet loud, sort of thing that grabs your attention. 
And the voice speaks to him in verse 11 and says, look, I want you to write down all that you see and send it to the seven churches, which is exactly what John did. That's why we have this book of Revelation. John does exactly as he was told by the voice. But there in verse 12, he turns around to see the voice. And in doing so, he has revealed to him in vision a vision of Jesus as he has never seen him before. It may well be a vision of Jesus where we've never considered Jesus like this before. Uh, and we will get to that. But just before we do, I'd like you to just look back a little bit, verse 9, and see how John describes himself there. We learn that John, he's not sitting in a comfy judge's chair. Actually, he's on the island of Patmos, at which point you might think, oh, I've been to Patmos. It's lovely. It's in the Mediterranean, Aegean Sea. It's quite a nice holiday destination. But in John's day, it was a lot less sun loungers by the sea and much more hard labor in the heat. Patmos 2,000 years ago was a Roman penal colony. It was a, it was a prison island, if you like. And John has been exiled to Patmos. Why? Well, he tells us for his faith in Jesus, for his wanting to share the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how he's coming back. Well, the Romans don't want anything to do with that, so they've stuck John on Patmos. But don't think that he's actually grumbling. He's not doing that. His description of himself there in verse 9 is, is actually uh, not only a description of himself, but in some ways a description of every Christian believer. It's very helpful. He says, look, I, John, your brother, that is brother or sister, as soon as you put your faith in Jesus, you become a part of God's family. Every other Christian believer is then your brother or sister. I'm your brother, he says, part of God's family, and I'm also your companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Suffering kingdom and patient endurance, they're all John's, they're all ours in Jesus. Now, that might seem a peculiar combination at first, but John here gives us a big hint as to why the letter is written in the first place, the, the context of the letter, and that's the context of the Christian life more generally. See, John knows that all who follow the king, Jesus, as such, you become a part of Jesus' kingdom. And you're a part of Jesus' kingdom in the present. That also means in the present we should expect Suffering, persecution for what we believe in the present. Now, that's not suffering. That's not persecution for being a numpty. That's not because you're obnoxious or obstinate or streperous. It's persecution because someone doesn't like the fact that you love Jesus and seek to follow him day by day. Someone doesn't like the fact that actually you listen to what Jesus says, you hear his voice, and you take it to heart. Taking to heart what he teaches. Now, John's not saying anything new here. Jesus, whilst he was on earth, said exactly the same thing. He says, look, the world will persecute me, and if you follow me, it'll persecute you as well. And the solution, do you notice, is not to hide, is not to try and please others so we're not persecuted. It's, that's why we have patient endurance. That's why patient endurance is a part of following Jesus. Because whatever suffering we may face in this life, we know it will end. We can patiently endure because we know there's a day in the future and it'll be a wonderful day in the future when Jesus will return and make all things new. We've already sung about that this afternoon. So the Christian is called into the kingdom to suffer for the name of Jesus and patiently endure, not for eternity, but until the king comes back. 
And in many ways, what John's talking about there in verse 9 is a summary of the whole book. That's what the book is encouraging. It's seeking us as God's people to strengthen us and help us patiently endure until we get to see Jesus face to face. With that in mind then, let's turn to see this voice, where hopefully this afternoon we'll see three reasons why the voice of Jesus should always have our full attention. Perhaps we we know we should listen to Jesus, but we're tempted to turn the chair the other way and to face away from him. Well, I hope and pray that this passage this afternoon will help us want to listen to his voice and will encourage us to patiently endure. Three quick heads for us. The first is this, the voice of the glorious King Jesus. We're not going to unpack these verses in detail for two reasons. First of all, we will focus on some bits of this description more in the weeks to come. As we get into chapters two and three, what you'll notice is that different attributes of Jesus described here are picked up in each of the seven letters. So that's part of the reason we're not going to unpack it today. But the main reason is because I don't think it's here so that we can unpick it and overanalyze it or deconstruct it. The vision is to help John and to help us begin to grasp something of the wonder that is Jesus Christ. I think this was helpfully explained back in the 1960s by uh, one Bible commentator, where he encourages us to recognize that whilst each part of this description is theologically significant, and it is, John's just not making stuff up, each of these descriptions are theologically significant, we'll see that in the weeks to come. But he said, we must make sure as we look at it that we don't unweave the rainbow, was his phrase. That say, the verses here, they should lead us to exclamation, awe and wonder, rather than thinking, I must get out my pencil and give an explanation. They are designed so that John and so that you and I have to take a step back as we see something of who Jesus really is. There's a world of difference, isn't there, between the Wikipedia explanation of a rainbow. It's an optical phenomenon caused by refraction, internal reflection, and dispersion of light in water droplets, resulting in a continuous spectrum of light appearing in the sky. That is true. That's Wikipedia. Listen to how William Wordsworth, the poet, describes it. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. And it is that heart response that I think we're supposed to get first and foremost from these verses. It is a vision to help us behold something of Jesus' majesty, his glory, his power, his wisdom, his insight, his strength. They're all in there. We're supposed to step back and be amazed at who Jesus is. To steal a phrase from the Apostle Paul writing to his friend Titus, what we see revealed here is the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I think it's fair to say that John has never seen this Jesus before, has he? Certainly nothing like the Jesus he used to go fishing with when Jesus was on earth. Nothing like the Jesus who was hanging on the cross in our place. But as we take a step back and look at the whole description, what we are faced with is Jesus' divine majesty and glory. Behind all these descriptions is it's Jesus is king and he is glorious. This is the voice then who is speaking to John, the glorious King Jesus. And as we begin, we need to be asking ourselves, well, are we listening? Are we listening to our King? 
will we turn our chairs around and behold him as he is? But secondly, if that's who the voice is, let's turn our attention to what the voice says. The voice who comforts the individual. Did you notice John's been literally floored by what he sees and hears? The vision is such an awesome sight for him to behold that John falls over. And he falls over in fear. We know that because Jesus says, don't be afraid. John falls over in fear, but Jesus doesn't leave him there. To his relief, John is not crushed. He is comforted. Verse 17 is a beautiful verse. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. If you've ever spent time reading about Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's a wonderful moment whenever Jesus looks with compassion on someone and says, do not be afraid. Well, he does the very same thing here in this vision for John. Do not be afraid. You'll perhaps be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In that book, the children, they're learning about Aslan, uh, the lion from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And this is an excerpt from it. Mrs. Beaver talking. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than ghosts or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, that is John's experience here, isn't it? He need not fear being consumed, being destroyed. Yes, Jesus is holy and John is not. Yes, Jesus is pure and John is not. And yes, on his own, John is in a hopeless situation, but he's not on his own. So he need not be afraid. For the one who reaches down to him to comfort him, well, it's remarkable, is the first and the last, the living one. Jesus is the one who was dead and is alive, and will be forever and ever and ever. Jesus has the power over life and death. He literally holds the keys. That is some power. Well, that is all power, isn't it? The power of life and death. No wonder John is scared. And yet he need not fear. For Jesus is good. He's very good. He's the king, I tell you. So whilst when we behold something of the glory of Jesus as John does here, we should fall down before Jesus. But it's not in fear, is it? It's to be in worship. It's to be in worship. Well, just before we move on uh, to the final uh, heading, can you please notice that Jesus comforting John is not all that was going on in these verses. I wonder if you noticed where Jesus was. We can understand John having the vision. He would be so consumed with what he hears and what he sees and then falling over. But did you notice where Jesus was and what he was doing when John saw him? Let me put it another way. If I were to ask you the question, what is Jesus doing now, right now? I wonder what you might say. Came up in the creed, didn't it? 
He's at the right hand of the Father. What is Jesus doing now? That holds particular significance, doesn't it, for the first century Christian who's reading this letter, sat in Ephesus or Smyrna or wherever they are, who are suffering for their faith. Because if you're suffering for someone and they're absent, what I want to suggest that makes it harder to patiently endure. If you think, here I am getting clobbered for being a Christian by the emperor, where's Jesus? Well, he's having a lovely time in heaven. That's going to make patient endurance harder. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus is not currently doing nothing in heaven. He's at God's right hand, and remarkably, he is praying for us. He is interceding for us. That's what we're told in Romans 8. When you wake up tomorrow and think, what am I doing today? You could be absolutely assured that you know what Jesus is doing tomorrow. He's going to be praying for you, interceding for you. But here in Revelation chapter 1, we're also reminded that Jesus is doing something else as well. And I think it's the most beautiful picture that demonstrates Jesus' care for his church. The voice then is the voice who cares for his church. Verse 12, we're told there's seven golden lampstands. In verse 13, where's Jesus? He is among the lampstands, in the midst of these lampstands. Now, lampstands may not seem immediately significant to us. Although you may know that in the book of Revelation, whenever we hear numbers like seven, they often don't just mean the number seven. The number seven is a symbolic number, meaning wholeness or completeness or perfection. So we considered the sevenfold spirit we saw in the first half of chapter one. That's not seven spirits. That is the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that by his spirit, Jesus is walking amongst the churches. These seven lampstands, we're told at the very end, are the seven churches. And as I say, I don't think that's just the seven numerical churches that we'll come across in chapters two and three, but the symbolic seven. That is all the churches on earth, all the churches on earth and through history. And this will become clear as we go through. You see, from next week, we'll look at each of these letters. But as we do that, you'll see they're not only written for them then. So the first one to Ephesus it's addressed to the geographical church in Ephesus. But the way the letter ends, the way all seven of those letters all end is with this phrase. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to all the churches. See, the seven churches that Jesus has pictured amongst here isn't just those seven in Asia Minor. It is all his churches, all through history. So the letter to the church in Ephesus, it is for the church in Ephesus then. But not only for them, and not only at that time, but for all the churches, all the time. That includes our church gathering here this afternoon. What is Jesus now? He's walking amongst his churches. He's amongst us now by his spirit. We're not alone this afternoon. And we're to listen to the voice, not only because the one speaking is the voice of Jesus, the voice of the king, but it's the voice of the King Jesus who cares very much for our church family. You see, in the Old Testament, a lamp like this would be found in the temple, and there'd be just one of them, and it would be the role of the priest to make sure the flame continued to burn. That would mean checking there's enough oil, trimming the wick, and all that sort of thing. Why? So that the lamp in the temple gave out light. And that's the picture we're given of here. Jesus is looking after his churches on earth so they can 
continue to give light. Jesus is amidst them. He knows what they're going through. He's watching and working with them. He's right there in the middle of all that we experience, caring for us in the same way. And the letters in chapters 2 and 3 will be one of the means by which we receive his care. And we need Jesus caring for us because on our own, the light will go out. But we're not on our own. Jesus is amongst us, caring for us, helping us to be that light on a hill that he calls us to be as his people. Will we see problems among the churches in chapters 2 and 3? Yeah, we will. But we need to remember who walks among them. It's King Jesus in all his glory, tending, ruling, knowing, and speaking to them. So can I trust that Jesus will succeed in looking after his churches? Well, yes. Look at how Jesus is described at the end of chapter 1. The churches may be weak. They are weak. We are weak, aren't we? But Jesus is mighty strong. So to finish then, this voice of Jesus, it is loud like a trumpet. It's like the sound of rushing waters, we're told. We're to make sure that we're listening and taking to heart what he says. The voice of Jesus should drown out every other voice. There's plenty of other voices we could listen to. But are we listening for his voice? The voice of the majestic and glorious one who comforts the individual who is caring for his church. When we feel isolated, well then maybe be those who turn and look and listen. When we're tempted to turn from him, may we turn back and look and listen. When we gather as church on a Sunday afternoon, may we be those who turn and look and listen. I'm going to stop there. Let's have a moment's quiet and then I will lead us in a prayer. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that John not only saw and heard, but he wrote all this down so we can, through his eyes, as it were, and through his ears, see something of the majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus, hear something of the majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can look and see him as compassion and generosity. Thank you that we can look and see him as the sacrifice in our place on that cross. But thank you that the cross could not hold him. Thank you that he has defeated death. Thank you that he is risen and alive and will be forever and ever. And one day he will return. We pray that as we go ahead into this next week, as we look for him to return, may we look for this Jesus. May we remember who he is what he has done, and how he is busy comforting us as individuals, caring for us as church. We praise you for your son. Amen.